Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. How does a legalist justify themselves? A legalist slash a hypocrite. Well, before answering that kind of a question, we have to explore what is a legalist in general. What kind of a person is what we call a legalist? Well, I think that legalists come in a number of forms. Most of us know, particularly those who are familiar with the Christian Bible, the form of a legalist that is a Pharisee. And that's what I would kind of call a maximum level Pharisee, or sorry, legalist. But I want to start on some lower forms first. Let's take, for example, the kind of person who takes either certain laws in the country of their origins or certain rules and edicts and laws in the Bible, and they follow those to a T for whatever reason. Maybe it has to do with past traumas. Maybe it has to do with uh, their own arbitrary decision making. But they more or less cherry-pick a number of things, Uh, maybe just one thing. I've known some people who, or known at least one person who uh, considered teetotalerism or just not touching any booze to be the most important thing ever, and of course he followed that to a T. But not really much else. And what's particularly notable and hypocritical about their behavior is that they will then look down upon anybody else who doesn't do this one thing. If every, if anybody else ever touches booze, they're not a good person, and I can't possibly associate with them, or maybe I will ridicule them relentlessly, or something like that. Now, of course, this person is not being moral. In fact, by the very effort, if it is something like teetotalerism, by the very effort of ridiculing other people for doing something that is not even of particular moral value, it is not the consumption of alcohol, but the addiction to alcohol that has moral content, then they are already being a hypocrite because they're not actually pursuing anything moral even on their higher value, or what they consider to be their highest value. But they're also ignoring essentially everything else that has to do with objective morality. Just by taking out this one idea, this one rule or law, and making it their summum bonum, making it everything that they think defines them, and then ridiculing somebody else, they are nothing but a hypocrite. Now, I think there are many other forms of legalism. Um, Not very many come immediately to mind. That one just stands out because it's kind of the one rule-itist, if you will. Maybe it's two, maybe it's five. doesn't really matter, they, whether explicitly or implicitly, take that to be the everything. You do these few simple things and you've got it. Now, as I'm kind of running through this, I am remembering a more implicit form of legalism because it's something that I have encountered in the Christian church. And that is, what would you call it exactly? Being on the in crowd. For example, you could have a church like one that I was a member of for some time that doesn't explicitly point this out, but implicitly. If you are part of the praise team, 
if you go out on missions trips, if you volunteer at everything you possibly can in this church, then you're part of the in-crowd. And what is the in-crowd? The in-crowd may be the inside cliques of the church itself. That's possible. But what the in-crowd really is, is you're a real Christian. You're the right kind of Christian. Because you're going out on these, mission, these missions trips, because you're doing these charity events, because you're doing X, Y, and Z, as we, the pastoral and leadership team, tell you about endlessly every Sunday after Sunday, that makes you a good Christian. And to be quite clear, in fact, I just went through a book that expressed this, personal evangelism, not biblical. Evangelism in general, yes, but not Every individual Christian has, in, has an obligation towards evangelism. Not there. Read your Bible and pray every day. Not biblical. Now, of course, yes, understanding the Bible, praying to God, are these biblical ideas? Absolutely they are. But if you set up read your Bible and pray every day as the standard to be a good Christian, not only are you um, being legalistic, but you're being not even explicitly biblical in your edicts, so to speak. Now, these kinds of traditions, and many of them are long-standing church traditions, may be very wise, but it is important to distinguish between that which is simply wise and that which is actually part of the Bible if you're a Christian like myself. If it is in the Bible, then you need to give it very due consideration, but if it is something that has simply grown within the traditions of the Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox Church, and nothing else, well, obviously as a Protestant, I believe in sola scriptura, as Martin Luther said, if it's just a human tradition that has been passed down generation to generation, but now it is upheld as if it is the standard to become a genuine Christian, then those who set it up like that are heretics, frankly. Because they have just put up human tradition on level with the Bible itself, with the word of God. That's heretical. But now moving into the pure legalist, if you will, the kind of person who pays so much attention to every letter perhaps in the scripture, perhaps in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, perhaps in the American legal system, perhaps in the courts of America, or something like that. And they study endlessly all of the details. I don't think we have as many of these kinds of people today, but they certainly have existed throughout history. They find every single detail that they can and then try to follow that to the letter. And as a result of that, they believed themselves to be very holy indeed. This was, of course, a Pharisee in the past, and anybody who behaves exactly like that is the true incarnation of a Pharisee in today's world. This is, to me, the highest form of a legalist. Because they're not just cherry-picking one thing or another, and they're not just taking human tradition and conflating it with law. No, they're taking the law, whatever law it is that they pick, and then they're trying to follow it to a T, and of course they snub their noses and look down upon anybody who doesn't have as high a standard as them. And in that kind of an environment, Jesus came along and said, your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees. 
And how, how of course, could he said could he have said something as crazy as that when the Pharisees themselves existed, following the laws to a T to the best of their ability, and probably hiding the fact that they weren't really doing that 100%. Well, Jesus himself, I think, gives us the answers, the answer to that rather, in the way that he dealt with the Pharisees themselves. He talked about the Pharisees and their so-called obedience to Scripture, particularly when it was an obedience that avoided a moral imperative. For example, Jesus talked about the fact that some of the Pharisees, if not many of them, probably many, would give to a holy task, give that is resources, money, time, to something that is quote-unquote holy, and then they would go to their parents and say, no, 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 I, um, I know that I have this responsibility to take care of your needs and so on and so forth based on the very scriptural edict, but because I have instead dedicated those, that time and those resources and that money to something that is holy, it, well, essentially it doesn't apply. They probably wouldn't have said that to their parents, but... Uh, I was too preoccupied, I had to take care of this holy thing, this greater thing, this more important thing. So I don't have it to give to you, mom and dad. Jesus takes that and calls it hypocrisy. Jesus takes that and calls that disobedience to God. What's he pointing out? He's pointing out that if you take that which is religious, holy, stated as a sort of ritual that we're to follow under God and by his command, but you ignore the common, average, everyday, objective moral behavior that we're supposed to live by, then you're disobeying God entirely. In fact, everything that you have done that is so holy doesn't matter at all. Or you could refer to the Old Testament, when God, through the prophets, talked about the fact that he loathed their sacrifices. And why did he load their sacrifices? The books of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and Leviticus point out stringently how the Jews, how the Israelites were supposed to bring to him sacrifices, and this was in obedience to God and for recompense for their sins. How could God possibly loathe that? Well, it's in the scripture. It was because they were worshiping idols on the side. They were dishonoring, cheating, bilking and horribly abusing their fellow neighbors and Jews. They were doing the simple, average, everyday things about in the worst way they possibly could. And in the face of that, God is telling them that all of their sacrifices are not only nothing, they're abhorrent. So how is it that Jesus could say that his disciples should exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, he was telling them that they needed to not be legalists. He was telling them that you don't get to believe that you're a good person just because you make sure not to do any work on the Sabbath. Or just because you made sure to give your tithe. Or just because you brought your sacrifice to temple. None of these things count if you are not being good in your everyday life. That's what Jesus was telling them. 
objective morality, everyday behavior is far more central. And to me, this is also one of the biggest arguments against the concept that moral living is not really central to Christianity. Yes, I agree that it is not not what saves us. It is not our salvation. But central to Christianity, absolutely. It is the way in which we obey God. Yes, what saves us is God and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That is all him. But Paul, in talking about working out your salvation in fear and trembling, I'm pretty sure that's referring to being good and kind and loving in your everyday life, as Paul himself also preached. Or, in everything that you do, do it as unto the Lord. Every common thing. Just look up the list. He's talking about work. He's talking about eating, being with your family, the regular average everyday stuff. So what is a legalist? A legalist is somebody who hides their evil behind keeping, uh, keeping rules. That is a legalist. It's why we despise and loathe their influence in our lives so much if we give it to them. I think all of us, by the way, should be working to get that influence out of our lives if it's there. We loathe it, we find it grating because it's arrogant, because it's hypocritical, and so on, and we can feel it. We may not know it fully in our conscious minds, but we feel it. We know it's hypocrisy, and we know that this person is hiding something. We can practically, it's practically like ants crawling up your skin, if you have any good wits about you. So the question that I started out with is, how does a legalist justify themselves? Why is this important? Doesn't it seem as if the legalists are quite proud of themselves? They're quite happy with their lifestyles. Doesn't it seem that way? Why would they, why would they need to be justifying themselves? Well, I mean, obviously right off the top, that kind of seems to be their entire shtick, right? They're following the rules, and therefore they're justified, and so on and so forth. But I don't think that's how far this goes. Now, the reason why a legalist would need to justify themselves, or i.e. be running from something, or trying to avoid something, or whatever, is, of course, because they have a guilty conscience. The rules are simply a facade, a smokescreen, or a gaslight, to hide the fact that maybe in their personal and private lives, maybe with their spouse or children, or maybe with their uh, church staff, as the case may be, that they're doing things that they know in their consciences they're not proud of. Or maybe it's something a great deal more subtle than that. Maybe they're cheating, uh, cheating in their business funds, or maybe they're being abusive towards others through their very sense of legalism or through their legalism as such. But because deep down they know that they are being cruel, because they know they are being proud and arrogant, they keep running from something. They keep seeking to justify themselves. 
seems like a circular logic there, right? If, if their very legalism is the thing that's causing them guilt, then why would the legalism be the solution to their guilt? I'll get back to that in a little while when I start talking about parents. But first, I would just want to focus on how does a legalist justify themselves? If they are running from their own guilt, if they do need to feel as if they are justified in order to be okay with their very existence, how do they go about it? Yes, in part, it is simply by trying to follow the rules. However, look at what the legalist is always, always doing. What is the one thing that a legalist will always do without fail, no matter what kind of legalist they are. You could start saying they follow all the rules to a T, you'd be wrong. They don't follow all the rules to a T. Nobody does that. In fact, most Christians will preach that even if they themselves are legalists. Or you could take the cherry-picking ones. Quite obviously, they are not following all the rules to a T because they're merely picking and choosing which ones they will follow. What do all legalists do without fail? They spread it. They proselytize. They may, in the very process of doing this proselytizing, this spreading of their great wisdom and truth and properness or whatever, make sure that anybody who is around them has the deepest respect they could possibly have for the legalism. You must follow these rules or else you are bad. You must follow these rules or I'm going to ridicule you. You must follow these rules or I'm going to feel superior to you and look down my nose at you. They make sure to spread their legalism and the following of their arbitrarily chosen group of rules. Why do they do that? It is for their justification. I've talked in previous podcasts about the fact that if we are not securely justified in God as Christians, we will seek to justify ourselves. The legalist justifies themselves by spreading their corruption. How do they feel that way? How do they feel that they're justified simply if they can spread it? Well, it's quite simple, really. It goes back to Paul when he talks about the fact that those who have abandoned the Lord are given over to their debased minds. If that is really all that their thinking takes them to, if it is simply animal-like, basic, instinctive thinking, then all they really need to do to at least feel as if their consciences shouldn't really be bothering them that much is if they can say, well, everybody does it. Everybody lives like I do. Everybody does the same thing that I do. And if everybody's doing it, everybody in my circle, every one of these moral people who I say that I am surrounding myself with and who I preach to, who I proselytize to, if everybody is following these edicts, edicts, then clearly I'm doing what's right. It is rightness by mass, not by objective fact. We 
condone ourselves by spreading lies if we are legalists. See, we're not necessarily, especially if we're one of the disciples of the legalist, looking at the scripture at all. This is what Martin Luther rejected. We're not looking at the objective morality. We're not looking at philosophy or theology or scripture or even necessarily doing a great deal of research into Christian and church tradition. We're just following the Mass. And because the Mass keeps saying that this is right, this is right, this is right, and that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, as long as we follow what they say is the right and what they say is the wrong, we feel that we are in the right. And our consciences don't need to bug us, even when they do. Provided we're not talking about absolute sociopaths. The legalist, by spreading their corruption, is, by doing so, trying to justify themselves. Oh, they fail. They absolutely fail, and that's why they get the more pissed whenever somebody doesn't follow the rules. Or they might beat themselves half to death, I mean, psychologically and emotionally for the most part, if they ever get anything wrong particularly among the disciples of the legalists. As Jesus himself said, you have made yourselves Pharisees, the sons of hell, and your disciples you make twice the sons of hell. Now, that's not exactly how he put it. I would have to look it up, but that's the general idea. He was telling them but that by spreading their legalism, he is making, their, sorry, the Pharisees are making their disciples even worse than the, than the Pharisees. One of the reasons why I could see that easily being the case is because the disciples of a legalist feel deeply condemned and guilty and horrible about themselves if they quote-unquote fall short. Now, as I said earlier, I was going to start bringing up parents. And of course, this has to do with corrupt parents. And this is a little added value to this particular episode. I hope you find it interesting. This self-justification through discipleship or spreading of your corruption is a large portion of how abusive parentage goes generation to generation. How does that happen? How is it that most parents come up with the rules for the household? How do they, what's their basis? Is it scripture? Nope. Is it objective moral standards? No. It may be a bit of a cherry-picking of this and that from either camp. From objective moral standards that we hear of through both theology and philosophy. It may be a little bit of scriptural references. But the vast majority of parents go based on feeling. Now, why they go based on feeling is a complicated question, but it's pretty simple to answer. That may have sounded like a bit of a contradiction, but what I'm getting at is that most parents will not admit, even for a second, that they are generating their rules based on feeling. But the reason why they so freely do so is because they have ultimate power over their children. I've mentioned before that the greatest power differential in the world 
is not, say, a president with a secretary. It is a parent with a child. And the reason for that is because the child is completely defenseless, defenseless by comparison, has no rights, has no power, has comparatively no responsibility, and the parent has all of those things in reference to the child. See, one of the greatest challenges to our character as adult human beings is when we have ultimate power over another human being. How do we behave then? We can generate whatever cockamamie rules we want simply because we don't like the alternative. Most of the rules that we get as we grow up in a household that is made the standard of the household, and if you live in this household, you need to behave in such and such a way, it is being said not because it has anything to do with objective moral standards, but because it's making the parent feel uncomfortable. And why is that the basis? Once again, because what, what can the child say against it? What power, what recourse does the child have against the parent to change their minds, to actually go by a higher standard than their mere discomfort, than their mere dislike of perhaps the way the child was behaving or what the child was saying? And it's even worse in Christian households because the moment the child says anything quote-unquote rebellious, the parent can then come back with, you're not honoring your parents. You're disobeying one of the Ten Commandments. That makes you a bad kid. And they start piling on the guilt in a religious sense upon a child who may be very reasonably bilking at an, un at an unreasonable rule. Or at their parent acting like the child. As I've talked about before, does it honor one's parents to treat them like children, even if the parent is the one asking for it? No, it does not. But if the parent says, you're not honoring me, and the parent has all the power, all the strength, all the responsibility in that particular dynamic, well, what can the child do? They've got to just take it. They might even know deep down that this has nothing to do with honoring your parents or dishonoring them. But they can still do it. So the reason why I'm bring, bringing this up is that the true form of what parents are doing with their children, maybe the majority of the time, maybe half the time, maybe a third of the time, I'm not certain about the number, but I know it's a really, really, really strong temptation. If that is the way that one's parents have dealt with power, then, for one thing, their behavior implies something very strongly. That because they are parents, they are the perfect moral paragons. Whatever they say goes, right? Whatever they say is moral is moral, right? It doesn't matter if, in truth, the Bible or objective morality goes flatly against whatever they're saying. It doesn't make a hill of beans difference. Because if the parent says it goes this way, that's the way it goes. So if not explicitly, at least, at least implicitly, and I think it's most of the time implicit, what they are saying is, because I am a parent, I am the perfect moral paragon. Whatever I say is not just okay or the proper way to be, 
It is good. It is moral. It is righteous. It is godly. Period. So if that's the kind of circumstance under which children have grown up, thankfully I wasn't entire I wasn't really one of them, but I know that many have. What then is the temptation for that child when they grow up? They find a spouse, husband or wife, they get married, they squeeze out a child or two. What's the temptation? Now I get to define the rules. Now, because I have popped out a child or two, I am a perfect moral paragon. Do they actually believe that consciously? Would they ever say that out loud? Of course not. That would be to give up the entire gig. But they were the ones under the abusive power of the parrot for so many years. And not having dealt with, because in my opinion you would have to not deal with, the pain and the fallout and the trauma of that abuse. They then become parents themselves, and having never really questioned it or processed the grief and the pain of it, what are they tempted to do? Do the same thing. Because the children must honor the parents, paying no attention to when Paul talked about the fact that fathers should not vex their children. Because the children should honor me, and because I am now head of a household, whether it be mother or father, often makes no difference at all. Now, whatever I say goes, because it does. And what they are really doing is, first of all, spreading the corruption, and secondly, deep down once again, they know they're being abusive. Now, I want to specify, I'm not saying consciously. Does anybody with half of a conscience still within them not know that if they're yelling and screaming and insulting their own offspring, do they not know, at least at some level, that they are doing horrible, abusive, terrible things? That they are being cruel to the most helpless, innocent, and powerless people they have ever encountered in their entire lives, their own children. Of course they know it. So how do they hide from that? If I can convince my children to respect me, quote-unquote respect, or honor, quote-unquote, if I can get them to eat up whatever BS moral rules that I'm setting up, again, quote, moral rules that I'm setting up in the household, and they listen to me, they obey me, they do whatever I say, then clearly by the fact that they are listening to me and obeying me and doing whatever I say, therefore, I'm right. Therefore, I'm justified. Because if I'm obeyed, I'm God. If I'm obeyed, to obey me is the highest moral achievement that the children could possibly make. Just as it says in the scripture about God. That's why I made that parallel. 
If the children obey the rules of the household, they're doing right because they're honoring their parents. And therefore, for the children to honor the parents and obey everything that the parents say means that the parent is doing what's right. Is there any moral imperative in there? Is there anything having to do with objective standards of ethics? Nope. This is just power. All this is, is the exertion of absolute authoritarianism. It's tyranny upon one's own children. And if those children then do not process the pain of their abuse, what are they going to probably do? Repeat it again. The worst legalists in the world are not Pharisees. The worst legalists in the world are abusive parents. See, a Pharisee was a fellow citizen with the people they tried to proselyze to. They had religious authority. They had the fear of the populace. But they were dealing with fellow adults. They had a good deal of power and fear over the people they spoke to, over those that they said, do this, do that, and you're a good Jew. But they didn't have defenseless, helpless people who could not possibly retaliate that they were proselytizing to. They might have had their own children, and if so, they were the worst kind. But a Pharisee alone is not the worst kind. Because the worst kind is the kind that has the absolute power and uses that power only to corrupt. Oh, they might be nice every once in a while and do pleasant things and say nice things, especially in public. But when it comes to behind the closed doors of the domicile of their household, they are cruel, exacting, immoral, evil, and they spread their corruption from their generation to the next generation. Those who run from a guilty conscience, instead of admitting that they have a guilty conscience, they do not repent, they do not turn around and admit that they have been wrong, can do nothing but spread corruption further. Oh, they'll try at very least. And God bless those who fight back. That's all I had for today. Until next time.